Hey, and welcome to The Token Daily. I'm your host, Suna Amaz. Each week, we sit down with movers and shakers in crypto to discuss big ideas, both in crypto and outside of it. Everything from trends we're seeing in the space to the books we're reading lately. This podcast is presented by the folks over at Blockworks Group, a blockchain event and media production company. For exclusive content and events that provide insights into the crypto and blockchain space, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. Matt Corallo is an engineer at Chaincode Labs and one of the top Bitcoin core developers. On the show today, we discuss what he means when he says Bitcoin has a 5% chance of succeeding, how he plans to replace mining protocol Stratum with better hash, what's coming up in the 2019 Lightning Roadmap, and what it's like being vegan in Bitcoin carnivory land. Hey, Matt. Welcome to the show. For listeners at home, can you give us a little brief background about what you are up to these days? Yeah, sure. Um, So I think... These days, I've mostly been working on Lightning stuff. So I guess my background um, started working on Bitcoin Core in early 2011, uh, back in high school, actually. Um, Did that for years on and off. Um, Still do that a little bit. Uh, Also built Fiber, helped build some of the Blockstream products that underlie Liquid while I was there. Uh, I now work at Chaincode Labs in New York, a research lab. Um, and I've been working on better mining protocol design, uh, better ways of thinking about how to do mining in Bitcoin, how to do pooling in Bitcoin, and also Lightning, um, and hopefully making Lightning more accessible to more app developers. Awesome. And today you're actually number three in the list of Bitcoin contributors on GitHub. But I wanted to talk about how you got started in this space and you kind of alluded to it when you said you started in high school. What drew you down the rabbit hole then? Because I am thinking back to when I was in high school and I was concerned about, you know, getting good AP scores and IB scores and studying for the SAT. (laughs) Like, how did you find out about Bitcoin and what led you down the rabbit hole? Yeah, so... I went down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. I, there was a podcast that I watched regularly at the time, um, and they did a like technical deep dive on Bitcoin at the time in, in early 2011, and I just found it really interesting. I found the, the concepts really interesting and the, uh, just the way the whole thing fit together kind of fascinating. And so I figured, you know, let me see if there's something I can do on this project. It turns out there was. The code was... Uh, needed some help at the time, and so I, I got to sit down and say, like, okay, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of work on this stuff, see where we can bring it, and the rest is history, as they say. I just kind of kept going. Did you have like friends who were also into it, or were you just like the one loner in the back of the classroom mining Bitcoin with a laptop, tethering no, yeah. other people? Definitely the second one. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. I was also recently listening to an old podcast episode that you did with Marty from Tales of the Crypt. And you, you mentioned that you think Bitcoin uh, actually has a 5% chance of succeeding. And I think that's a surprisingly low number, especially considering the fact that you've pretty much dedicated your life to this thing. I'm curious and I'm assuming like, you know, you're depending on it working. I'm curious why it's a 5% chance. What are the major ways you see Bitcoin being killed or could be killed? 
Yeah, well, I think there's... <laughs> I, I, I like to use that as a talking point and actually bring it up in a lot of talks I give and a lot of interviews I do. Um, I, I, I think I look at it slightly differently because I think it, it's, it's a useful way to look at things. You know, I don't look at it as Bitcoin has a 95% chance of like going to zero and the price is zero and no one ever uses it for anything and blah, blah, blah. I, that's less likely. Um, but there are, you know, certain goals for why I keep working on Bitcoin, why Chaincode as a company keeps funding Bitcoin, blah, blah, blah. And they're mainly around, let's build actually distributed financial tools for people who need it. Uh, you know, people who don't have financial infrastructure for whatever reason, maybe they're in Venezuela, maybe they're in, you know, maybe they're one of the 60, 70 percent of people in the world who are under authoritarian regimes and they need access to financial services that aren't censored or whatever. Um, you know, there's a lot of different angles where Bitcoin actually provides real social value to, you know, humans and not just financial value to people speculating and whatever. And we're still a long ways from really filling that niche. Cryptocurrency as a whole, not just Bitcoin, right? Um, the user experience of almost all cryptocurrency stuff is still really terrible. Um, liquidity on local exchanges has improved a lot over the last few years. Um, so that helps a lot. Also, the fitting... You know, we, we still need a lot of user experience improvements. We still need, you know, there's so many things that we've been talking about for years, like Lightning, like payment channel networks. These are things we've been talking about since 2011. And we're just finally starting to see them be built, starting to actually have the resources to explore building out the kind of infrastructure that we've been thinking about forever. And there's still a lot to remains to be seen whether or not we can actually do something with that and whether mining centralization gets better and whether, you know, this kind of uh, consensus rigidness that Bitcoin has developed after 2x stays there and whether that is there for the long term and all these big questions that we just don't know the answer to yet. And I mean, there's this school of thought where, you know, every year that Bitcoin doesn't is still being used or quote unquote doesn't die it just grows stronger and that just ensures you know x amount of years it'll continue surviving i mean do you do you buy that yeah i mean there's certainly an element of that um that also depends on us setting the right culture so you know one thing that came up a lot during the 2x debates and bitcoin unlimited and all those uh, various scaling debates was setting the right culture around how bitcoin evolves and how the different constituency groups in the Bitcoin community work together to make changes or don't work together to not make changes, as mm -hmm. the case was. Um, and really, really quickly, for our listeners that don't understand what the 2x thing was, can you give a very high level overview? Yeah, so the, the background, you know, for obviously for a long time, there was a lot of debate about how Bitcoin should scale. Uh, there still is to some extent. Um, 2x specifically was uh, an effort by some folks in the business community to say, you know, to, to form the fifth out of, you know, whatever, however many agreements of like, okay, here's the plan and we're going to do this and the Bitcoin network is going to evolve in this way and here's the kind of list of changes that are going to happen. Um, from that grew a large debate about 
who should be in charge of making these decisions, how should that process look, and in the end, 2x didn't happen, none of that activated, uh, it died worthless. Um, and that was in large part because the kind of community saying, no, business leaders don't get to change the Bitcoin consensus rules without you know, broad-based agreement. This just isn't the way it can work or the way it should work. Um, being able to stand up to that and say no. And so it ended up dying and it ended up setting this kind of precedent that the way changes get made to Bitcoin has to involve a lot of different constituencies and they all have to work together. You can't have one group that kind of runs with it and just decide something for every user of Bitcoin, not just themselves. Right. So you think getting clear around how these decisions are made and making sure we pay more attention to the culture is going to be more important than just the time Bitcoin, just like year by year progression, right? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think it's less about like getting clarity there and more about making sure that people who are new coming into the space have similar visions, quote unquote similar, right? So we can't have a world where you know, everyone, you know, every year there's however many new people who get into the space and they all think that, you know, the way changes get made is X. We have to make sure that we kind of, quote unquote, share the culture that has developed around Bitcoin, especially through the process of 2X and the previous kind of iterations that look similar to it. We have to make sure that we share that built up knowledge and built up culture with new people coming into the space. Absolutely. And speaking of shared vision. I'm really interested to hear your perspective on this as you're a Bitcoin core developer. But I want to ask you the popular question, which is, is the block reward enough a security for Bitcoin after its continuous happenings? As it becomes less profitable over time for people to maintain the network, how do you think people will continue to be incentivized to do so? I mean, it's a good question and I don't have an answer, right? Um, this is definitely one of the kind of big questions about any cryptocurrency system. And it, it's not specific to Bitcoin. You know, I, I, a lot of people like to say, well, you know, Bitcoin has this built-in halving structure. Yeah, I mean, either you have inflation, like un, unlimited never-ending inflation, or you don't. There's not really an in-between. Um, Bitcoin doesn't, but other things might. So it's not really just a Bitcoin question, but it, obviously we don't know the answer. Right. Bitcoin had this vision and any non-inflationary cryptocurrency has a vision that eventually transaction fees are going to pay, you know, whether it's miners or stakers or whatever, you have to pay them somehow. And the vision in Bitcoin is transaction fees. It's mm -hmm. unclear whether we're going to get there. You know, we did have a spike uh, right kind of the end of last or I guess the end of 2016 um, or 20. Was it now? It's 2019. Yeah, the end of 2017, um, there was a spike at which point there was actually each block was paying out more than, uh, I guess it was 12 and a half Bitcoin in fees. So it was paying 25 Bitcoin for each block when the actual subsidy was only 12 and a half. Eventually, we're going to have to get to a point that looks like that. Now, hopefully that's not necessarily tomorrow or next year or that soon, and we can build systems that alleviate that concern for people who aren't doing large volume transactions, right? So you talk about moving money in and out of something like Liquid, or you talk about moving money in and out of something like RSK, or you talk about moving money in and out or uh, into or out of a channel in Lightning. You know, you can 
make each kind of on-chain transaction represent a lot of practical transactions. So it's not necessarily a high percentage fees, but you know, this is why I subscribe to a, there's a low chance of Bitcoin kind of fulfilling the vision that I think people have for it because we just, there are many open questions that we won't, we can't know the answer to for 10 years. Mm. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I want to switch conversation a, a bit and focus more on mining. Um, I know you think about mining a lot, especially with your project BetterHash, which we'll get to in a second. But I want to start with a more high-level question and then go a little more granular. Let's start with what is something that people get like egregiously wrong about mining that sounds good in theory but doesn't actually play out in practice? Huh. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I think there, there are a number of misconceptions about mining. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of, you know, obviously there's a lot of people who have a stake in the game and a lot of people like to talk about mining centralization and how bad it is and pool centralization and that kind of thing. Um, there is a lot of very regular confusion. Uh, a lot of people, you know, they refer to pools as miners. There's the actual ASICs, the, you know, the, the people who own the farms. And that, that world is way less centralized than the actual pool world. Um, the you know pools obviously pool together a large number of constituent users and a large number of constituent businesses into you know one big pot. And so you look at like the the centralization of Bitcoin mining and the pool the the world of centralization and bitcoin mining of pools is really bad the world of centralization and bitcoin mining of the actual farms and operators is a very different story now of course we have a bit less visibility into that world but it is a lot better than actual pools um yeah i mean there's there's a million disagreements about mining that people are confused about but i think that's at least in the context of better hash, kind of the interesting observation that makes it useful. And I kind of want to talk about what you're working on now. Uh, your current project, better hash, are you doing that through Chain Code Labs? Like, what's the relation there? The link? Yeah. So, I mean, Chain Code were effectively a nonprofit. Um, we are funded just as a research lab to kind of go build Bitcoin technologies, build up the infrastructure around cryptocurrency. Uh, most of that is focused on Bitcoin. It's not necessarily required, but it just ended up that way. Um, and so BetterHash fits into that, right? So BetterHash is an effort to build new, smarter, faster, more secure mining protocols um, that is just kind of open research. It's a new standard uh, and trying to work with people to use it. But that's you know funded by chain code as just a chain code funds research. And this is just kind of a research effort and a practical engineering effort, hopefully. And so currently BetterHash is a mining protocol uh, that's aiming to replace Stratum. So let's start with a little background info. What even is a mining protocol? Yeah, so the way a pool works kind of broadly, right? So you have all of these clients who are all running their big farms and they have a million ASICs and somehow they have to decide what to work on. And obviously, you know, if you know a little bit about blockchains generally, you have, well, blocks and miners make blocks and the blocks contain a list of transactions that are 
quote unquote confirmed in that block. So somehow somebody has to decide what to put, what transactions to include and how to construct the block. And the way that works right now is the pool does that. The pool runs a full node and collects transactions and validates them and puts those together in a candidate block and then sends that to their miner, to their clients. And their clients work on it and all of their ASICs try to solve the puzzle. And then if they get a solution, they send it back to the pool and the pool is like, yay, we have money. If they don't, they keep working. Um, they send thing, they send more solutions to the pool than are actually full blocks. And this allows the pool to see that the miner is working, even if they haven't actually found a full Bitcoin block, right? So there's kind of, there's two difficulties is what we call it, right? So there's the difficulty for finding a Bitcoin block that goes out on the network and that requires a certain number of hashes and blah, blah, blah. And then there's the kind of lower difficulty that the pool uses. And so if a miner finds, you know, 40 blocks at a lower difficulty, that might correspond to one real block, but it does prove that the miner is doing work. And this allows the pool to pay out based on how much work each of their clients have done. Um, yeah, so the, primarily this pool kind of does the work and the, the way they validate everything is because they select the transactions, they know that the miner, these kind of end users are paying to the pool. So right, if they actually did find a block, that payout reward would go directly to the pool and not to the user. And there's nothing they can, you know, either they are working on the pool or they're not working on the pool. Got it. And what are the current problems with Stratum that Betterhash aims to solve? So Stratum is a super old protocol, you know, it was kind of written early in the days of Bitcoin by the slush pool folks. You know, it works for what it does, but we've learned a lot since then, and there's a lot better that we could do. So first of all, Stratum is completely unauthenticated. It's a kind of insecure, it's a relatively insecure protocol. Your ISP or your ISP's ISP or your pool's ISP or the guy installing the um, internet connection down the road or whatever, all of these people could man in the middle your mining farm and take some hash rate, cut it off the top, and you wouldn't really necessarily notice. Um, so security is a big one that needs to be fixed. Um, another one is there's this issue, you know, as I was talking about, about centralization in pools. Well, pools kind of do two things, right? They do all of this work of running a full node and selecting the transactions and building a block and blah, blah, blah. And then they also do this work of receiving the reward, figuring out who had, who's been mining how much and doing payouts based on that. There's no reason that those two need to be connected. Stratum kind of confuses the two and does connect them by making the pool generate the work, but we could separate those. And in fact, this kind of solves the decentralization problem of mining, or at least goes a long way to addressing it because it allows users to run a full node, you know, this whole censorship resistance of Bitcoin and any cryptocurrency is reliant on miners or stakers or what have you selecting transactions without considering any kind of censorship. And so if we can push that responsibility to the miners, which is a decentralized, relatively diverse, relatively large group and away from the small 
group of pool operators, then all of a sudden we get this kind of decentralization property back that we really want without even necessarily killing the pools. We can still have pools, they just don't have that kind of power anymore. So those are the first two, and then the last one, it's just better uh, spec'd out. It's a little bit more efficient, it's actually documented. Stratum that does some crazy things that aren't even documented anywhere. Um, it's just nicer to work with, hopefully. Who stands to actually benefit most from better hash? Who is your ideal, who's using it? And like, does it actually change the demographic of who's using Stratum versus who's using better hash? Or who is this ultimately benefiting? So, yeah, I mean, it, it's a little bit tricky. Um, better hash is mostly useful from a um, kind of network perspective, right? So if you're an individual miner, you don't really gain all that much from using this aside from, you know, you feel better about running your own full node and blah, blah, blah. There's a little bit of a improvement from it being just more efficient and more secure, and that's great. But you don't gain necessarily monetarily from that unless someone is trying to steal your hash rate. Um, it does obviously benefit kind of hopefully the future of Bitcoin pretty greatly in that it makes things a lot more decentralized and hopefully improves our long-term success rate or long-term success chance. It doesn't have this kind of immediate monetary gain of say a more efficient pool or a pool with a better fee structure or something like that. And uh, how has adoption been, if you can talk about it, for, for a better hash? Given, I mean, we are in a bear market, but I'm curious. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, it, it doesn't, yeah, so it it's tricky. Um, you know, there's, there's not like a strong pitch for it. Um, it doesn't make people more money. It doesn't, uh, it is more secure. So there, there are a lot of risks of running a farm that I think people undervalue right now, but they currently undervalue those risks, and so that's not necessarily a compelling argument if they don't see it as a risk. Um, we are working with, you know, Chainco, some of the folks at Chaincode are working with a few pools and a few miners to try to get some pools off the ground that support better hash natively um, and try to, you know, start pitching people and using it, but it's a slow burn. Um, it's something that would go a long way towards improving cryptocurrency as a whole, and especially Bitcoin, but it's you know, it's one of those things that is just a cost center for people to switch to something new. Mm -hmm. And so we're working on, you know, getting in with people who are setting up new farms, new pools, that kind of thing. Um, hopefully making it an option on day one. And that way we can solve a lot of tech problems for people. You know, we can design a more efficient pool that works better with Bitcoin Corks. We have a lot of uh, knowledge about the internals there. And we can, you know, help people optimize this from day one without them having to do as much work. So, you know, we have we have a few angles we're working on, but it's it's challenging. The uh, mining community tends to be pretty conservative and thinking about, you know, how their hardware connects to the pool is not usually in the forefront of their their minds. They're worried more about getting a good price on power, getting a good price on their hardware, getting the hardware installed, getting the freaking transformers installed, getting inspections, all these kinds of, you know, more practical matters. Yeah, no, I mean, it just seems like better hash is, I mean, one, you're in a good position if you aren't considering that, but I think it's more insurance against like security attacks or like anything happening because of like a lack of documentation, et cetera. Like, yeah, and we have seen attacks against pools um 
against pools at a PG at a BGP level, sort of fundamental internet infrastructure level. We've seen people uh, man in the middle pools and steal hash rate. In fact, we saw this happen to some altcoin pools five years ago, six years ago, seven years ago. You know, some coins that have since long ago died off. We saw these kinds of attacks happen, and we haven't seen them more recently in Bitcoin. We did see similar attacks against uh, my crypto or my Ether wallet, um, and we can totally see those happen to pools again. That just hasn't been on the forefront of people's minds to go steal this, uh, to go kind of steal hash rate and get free money, and so it just hasn't happened much. But you're right, there's definitely some value to some insurance against it, given we have seen it in the past and we know it's very practical and very possible. Right. I, I kind of I'm interested to hear your take on a trend that you've been seeing in mining in general. The future looks kind of bleak for large miners lately. Um, we recently saw you know Jihan Wu uh, apparently step down from Bitmain. People are throwing their miners out in the streets because they're unprofitable and they cost you know more to maintain than they are to actually mine coins. So what are you seeing lately that people who aren't you know, directly in the mining space, like, what are you seeing lately that people outside of mining wouldn't know? Yeah, I mean, I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not as connected with some of the folks doing day to day mining, but we've seen the difficulty go back up, right? So um, we've definitely seen a lot of confusion around, you know, some people threw out their farm, some people, you know, turned them off, some people just disconnected their farm and took this as an opportunity to move to a place that had much cheaper power. And so we did see the difficulty came right back up, you know, the, the difficulty went down, it got a little bit easier to mine, a little bit cheaper, people's costs went down, um, and it went right back up, right? So definitely the bear market has been good for forcing miners to move to more renewable energy, uh, you know, cheaper energy, obviously, renewable, especially hydro, is some of the cheapest energy, if not the cheapest energy you can get anywhere in the world. Um, and so if anything, it just means fewer miners mining on coal and, and hurting the environment and more miners mining on stranded hydro in the middle of Siberia. That's just useless energy anyway. Absolutely. Wow, it's an excellent point. Like this bear market kind of offers these miners a breather to relocate to more cost efficient or, you know, cleaner sources of energy. Cause yeah, during a bear market, you can't afford the luxury of, you know, taking a breather and, and relocating. Interesting. Cool. One of your many other projects is lightning. You work on lightning and I was curious what things like, are you excited about that are coming up in the roadmap in 2019? Yeah. Yeah. So I've been working on uh, a lightning, my own little lightning library, trying to make it easier for people to integrate lightning into existing wallets and that kind of thing. Um, but have also been, as you point out, you know, working a little bit on helping out with the next version of the lightning spec and helping, you know, uh, improve the way things are designed. So there was um, a lightning kind of spec implementers meeting in Australia, second half of last year, I guess, I guess late last year, where we talked about a lot of different ideas for what to include and what, what things to change in kind of the next major revision. Um, and a lot of it was focused on just usability improvements, right? So there's a lot of pieces of lightning today that are, you know, just annoying usability wise and that are kind of baked in at the protocol level. And so there's a lot of just very small iterative steps that make a big difference for users, right? So one of them talking about 
I guess LND is talking about shipping this very soon, and this is uh, push payments, right? So today, if you want to send someone a Lightning payment, they have to first send you an invoice that they have to get out of their Lightning node, and then they have to give that to you, and then you have to pay using that. You can't just like put up a Lightning public key and get donations, right? So this is just a basic thing that people want to do with cryptocurrencies, accept donations, and suddenly they can't do that with Lightning. So push payments, very big step forward, relatively small kind of at the spec level, but big step forward in usability. So what does push payments do exactly? It abstracts that away or? So, yeah, so it's a trade-off. It's part of a a broader set of changes called uh, AMP or what's now being referred to as the original AMP. it allows you, so it gets the trade-off it makes is it gets rid of this kind of proof of payment. So historically, Lightning, someone gives you an invoice. This is a thing that is signed by them that you can pay to. And when you've paid it, you get atomically as a part of the whole thing, a proof of payment. And if you have that invoice and you have this proof of payment, you can prove to anyone who's interested that you definitely paid that invoice. Now, if you don't have the invoice and you're just doing like a donation or something like that, you obviously don't get a proof of payment. There's nothing you can do. And so what you do is you create this kind of the, the hash pre-image. It's actually uh, the hash pre-image in the HTLC if you know about the uh, underlying technology. But the actual sender creates this hash pre-image and sends that to the recipient. And then the recipient uses that to claim the money. And there's no kind of proof of payment involved, but now you can do these kind of unsolicited payments. Oh, cool. Um, and outside of push payment. Um, so that's, a, yeah, so that's a little thing that's that's really improved, going to improve usability. Um, another thing is, you know, Lightning, when you first create a channel, they're funded by one side, right? So if I create a channel to you, I put in all the money on the chain and then I can send you payments. But until I've sent you some payments or routed some payments through you, you can't send me payments. Mm -hmm. So this is obviously kind of a big issue if you're like, okay, I'm going to install a Lightning wallet and then my friend's going to pay me. Well, you can't. First, your friend has to open a channel to you and why would they open a channel to you? So uh, that's obviously pretty big UX sticking point. And so now there's kind of going to be this marketplace for people co-founding channels, right? So I'm going to say, hi, I'd like to uh, create a channel with someone, but I you know, want to be able to receive a payment right away. You find someone in this marketplace, you open a channel with them, you put in some amount of money, and maybe they put in 10% of what you put in. And this allows you to get kind of instant liquidity. Obviously, neither of you necessarily have to trust each other, because that's kind of the whole point of Lightning, but it allows you to get a little bit of liquidity instantly, and then your friend can pay you right away, and it just makes the whole kind of setup flow a hell of a lot nicer. Oh, wow. And is there an incentive for the other person in the marketplace, or are they, you know... Yeah, you're going to pay a little. So you're going to... A, you're going to pay some of the fee to create the channel, the, the person who kind of initiates it. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, there's an on-chain transaction fee involved in this, so you're going to pay that on-chain transaction fee. Um, so they kind of get another channel for free. They don't have to pay the transaction fee. So that in and of itself is a little bit of an incentive because they will get any kind of routing fees or whatever. Um, but there's also, it is a marketplace. So at the end of the day, they can say, like, I'm going to charge some fee to provide you this liquidity, um, you know, it's hopefully relatively low because you're going to get these routing fees and you're going to get um, 
and you know you just get more channels and some people like that but yeah it is ultimately a marketplace and people bid on the ability to add channels and is this marketplace lightning native or is this a different company that's introducing this or is it being introduced on the uh, protocol level no no it, it's on the protocol level right so like uh, they're, they're already on the protocol level you have this kind of rumoring of the graph information right so people say hi i've got a channel i'm a node look here's my channel it's worth this much and i'm connected to these peers um, obviously that's all optional you don't have to announce that but if you want to be a node that people route through, you you announce this kind of information. Um, and as a part of that, you get to announce, also, if you'd like to open a channel with me, I will do so, and I will co-fund it a little bit, and I will charge X to do so. Oh, super cool. Are there any other things that we can look forward to uh, in 2018, or even beyond, that like either is proposed and isn't being built out yet that you want to see built? I guess if you had a request. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a number of... Yeah, so there's there's some more technical changes that make kind of lightning practicality a lot easier. So one of the things I'm excited about and have been working a little bit on, um, there's this issue in lightning and a lot of related proposals. It's not necessarily just unique to lightning, where you're the whole point of lightning right is you're exchanging these pre-signed transactions. So I don't have to trust you because you gave me a transaction that I can broadcast on the Bitcoin chain if I want to that. You know, in case you misbehave, I can take your money, that kind of thing, right? So you don't have to trust each other by giving each other these transactions that you could broadcast if you had to. The problem is you're creating this transaction in advance with the anticipation of being able to broadcast it at some point in the future. But you don't know what the fees are going to be like in the future, and you don't really have a great way of predicting that. And even worse, if your counterparty has some better way of predicting what the fees are in the future, they could go on chain right before fees go up and maybe you won't be able to broadcast this transaction and then the security model of Lightning kind of falls apart. This is a general class of issues. So Lightning kind of addresses that today. There's like a whole negotiation process between peers to try to predict what the fee is gonna be in the future. But hopefully we're gonna, we, we came up with kind of a, a, a clever hack to get around this issue and allow people to kind of figure out what the fees are at the time they want to broadcast so they don't have this weird, terrible prediction problem. This, hopefully, users don't necessarily ever see this, but it simplifies a lot of the logic in the Lightning clients. It makes channels less vulnerable to, um, you know, because there's this negotiation process where nodes have to agree on the current fee information. Uh, if they disagree, they'll just close the channel right away. and so. Uh, early, early in Lightning, when it was first kind of being used on testnet, people had a lot of problems with channels just randomly closing because they couldn't agree on the fee rate, these kind of issues. Uh, so hopefully we can get rid of you know, all of those issues by just replacing that whole fee complication with uh, our own little clever hack. Oh, wow. And that's being worked on today, right? Yeah. So all of these things are being worked on. Uh, I guess none of them have shipped yet. Uh, a lot of them... Some of them are still kind of in the spec level drawing board. The the original AMP stuff, uh, LND folks are working on shipping that soon, I guess. Um, so they're all in various stages of ready, and but now Lightning's still, you know, it's moving forward quickly, um, but it's still pretty early. Do you have a request for a Lightning change or a, a Lightning app that you haven't seen built and is not being worked on, but you want to see built out in the future? So, so I'm working right now on this library that's 
kind of a battery is not included lightning node. So you kind of, if you are an existing wallet author or, you know, you have already your SPV wallet, whatever, and you want to integrate lightning, you can't just kind of like flip the switch and integrate lightning with LND or C lightning. That's, you know, you'd ship a whole second node and now you're running two nodes in your mobile wallet and you're like wasting a ton of battery and whatever. It just doesn't really make sense. So I'm trying to provide this thing that lets people integrate lightning into their existing system without nearly as much effort, without having to think about like re-implementing lightning from scratch, that kind of thing. So broadly, you know, my goal and the thing that I'd like to see exist is, you know, to have an easy way for people to integrate lightning if they want it in their existing wallets so that we don't just have, you know, Bitcoin wallets and lightning wallets. We just have Bitcoin wallets and they can pay with lightning. They can pay with regular on-chain, whatever. It's up to the receiver, but they can very easily integrate it and it can be kind of more of a ubiquitous thing. Wow. When do you plan to have that live and you know accessible to the public? Yeah, so I mean, it's been making really good progress. Um, it's getting to the point, I mean, it's, it's been at the point where like you can use it on testnet, you can, you can demo it, you can open channels and send payments and route payments and all of that fun stuff for you know six months or more. Um, it's starting to get pretty close to the like integration phase. And I've been talking to a number of wallets, uh, especially mobile wallets about, you know, what does integration look like? Are they interested in, in working on this kind of stuff? Um, so hopefully in the next kind of six to 12 months, um, it's something that we can talk about shipping in real production wallets. Um, but there's still, you know, a few months of work to get it kind of stable and production ready in its own right. And then obviously there's a bunch of work to be done to actually integrate that with a user facing wallet and, you know, get that tightly integrated. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it though. The last question I'll ask you about Lightning. I think the the Lightning Slack channel is actually one of my favorite like dev communities to check out. Um, there's always random apps that people have built on Lightning. Uh, Satoshi's Place, obviously, being one of the most popular, and light things like Lightning Tips. I'm curious if you have a list of like your top two or three Lightning apps that you've seen built from other people in the community. <laughs> Oof. Um... Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the yeah, you're right. The Lightning app community has been really cool. A lot of people really just kind of playing around with this technology, seeing what they can build with it. It's been really fun to see. Um, I don't know if you saw the, uh, there, there's a variation of Satoshi's Place that's uh, Conway's Game of Life. So it's uh, like Conway's Game of Life board that anyone can draw on by paying some Satoshis. Uh, that's that's kind of cool because people have been putting random stuff on there. And, and unlike Satoshi's Place, it doesn't go away as quickly uh you know you can build a glider and it'll just kind of keep going until someone uh, overwrites it as much larger board so you don't have as much problem with people overwriting the whole board all at once um so that was kind of cool um but there's a lot of there's a lot of things I, i'm really excited as the space matures a little bit there's been a lot of really cool demos and it's starting to move into cool kind of games that people can play and actually might want to play and you know some of the gambling stuff and whatever and then as we move more towards you know some exchanges are talking about using it for deposits and withdrawals and as we start to get it more to the production of like you know people use this as a way to interact with bitcoin not just as a way to interact with lightning it should be really cool to see it's awesome 
Another question that uh, comes up in the space, and I, I am curious to hear one your take on what it means, and, and two if you agree. So there's a few articles that talk about calling blockchain developers or coders what they actually are, and those are fiduciaries. So I'm curious what this coders are fiduciaries argument is, and, and what your stance on it is. Yeah, I mean it it, it. it cuts to the heart of kind of like what is the duty of care that people have towards their users, especially as open source developers. Um, I think, you know, legally in the U.S. and, and the Western world. Legally, you're not, right? So legally, uh, open source developers, you write software, and you don't really have any obligations to your users. Um, but that cuts both ways. Um, and I've, I've definitely seen a lot of people uh, in the blockchain space, in the cryptocurrency space, and outside of it, not take that seriously. You know, they, they take this seriously, like, ah, well, you know, I'm just writing software, and I don't have to have to care what people think or, you know, whether people lose money because of some bugs in the software or whatever is not really my problem. Um, and then on the like polar opposite of that, you have like the Bitcoin core crowd who, you know, take everything very seriously and then try very hard to make sure that, you know, people who built their business and their livelihood on the software and the system, you know, don't have bugs that make them go under, don't have bugs that make them lose their money, that kind of thing. Um, so in terms of the like should software developers be uh you know held as fiduciaries or something like that i mean i obviously no in the sense that like that the the legal implications of that would make it impossible to write open source software um or at least write open source software without having some very expensive insurance against such lawsuits but at the same time, I do wish there were more, you know, people took more seriously this responsibility because it, it, there are a number of times where I've seen people and just been very disappointed with the kind of lack of feeling of duty of care. Like they didn't feel like they had this duty to care about their clients and their customers and their users and make sure that they don't lose money and make sure that it, things are secure. What would be an example of that where they just leave it up to the customer sorry can we is there more concrete yeah i mean I just you know the way people approach especially cryptocurrency right because like if you build something with cryptocurrency that has a bug in it or like you know this feature is like not really ready for production but you're just going to ship it anyway and you're gonna uh you know if someone loses money well it's their fault for uh you know having used this beta feature I just don't really buy that argument. I've seen a lot of people make that argument. I've seen a lot of people say like, yeah, you know, we we shipped this thing. We think it probably has bugs, but we tagged it beta and that's like the user's problem. And like, if they have a problem, they can figure it out. I just don't buy that argument. And I don't generally appreciate when people make that argument. Um, but at the same time, I understand like there's only so much you can do in the day and there's only so much... You know, you have to ship things at some point, and when do you draw the line of when it's ready, and how do you, you know, decide this is something people should be putting their money in, and, and it's secure enough for that, and people aren't going to, like, randomly lose money because of bugs. It's a hard question. So I think for our last bit, I wanted to talk about being a vegan in a 
especially the, the Bitcoin community is particularly meat eating sometimes. I, th- I think my Twitter feed looks like more of an episode of like Iron Chef. Yeah. <laughs> than a Bitcoin community. And so yeah, it's no secret they are a carnivorous bunch. But you are vegan, Elizabeth Stark is vegan, I'm vegetarian, and it's a it's we're definitely the minority in this space. I'm yep. curious. Have you like, you know, been peer pressured to make the switch over? How do you deal with like do you get invited to carnivory meals and what do you do in that situation? <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, it's a good question. No, I mean I don't yeah, I'm not, I, you know, I, I obviously don't have anything against people who choose to eat meat. You know, your diet's your diet. You, you do what you want. I'm not the uh, PETA-type vegan uh, militant about the whole thing. But, you know, I, I, I think there is kind of a, a distinction to be made between the crypto Twitter Bitcoin crowd and the rest of the Bitcoin community. Because the the very loud voices on crypto Twitter, who do happen to often be very carnivorous, are not necessarily always the kind of broader Bitcoin community. And there's a lot of different diets and different random, you know, unique people in the Bitcoin community that doesn't necessarily come across on crypto Twitter. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've I've never had a problem uh, dragging Bitcoiners to a vegan restaurant, and I've I've definitely convinced some folks that actually there are some really fucking good vegan restaurants, at least in New York, uh, that people maybe weren't necessarily surprised about. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. There's, yeah, if Safe, if Safe Dean's listening to this, we'll, we'll eventually get him to a vegan restaurant. Oh but... yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm buying, he can come, uh, there's some really <laughs> good ones in New York. Okay, I mean, you said it. We'll reference this for evidence. Anyway, we're running up on the hour, so we're going to have to wrap up. But I want to say thank you so much for joining us today. It was a really enlightening conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, everyone. Suna here. If you liked this episode of The Token Daily and want to help us take crypto to the top of Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, then please do us a favor and rate, review, and smash that subscribe button. To leave a review, simply go to the Token Daily homepage and scroll down until you see five blank stars. Taking a few seconds to fill those stars in and leaving a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. Thanks again for choosing to listen to the Token Daily. I'll see you next time.